0: Welcome to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I can't believe that we are finally here after a couple months of bonus episodes and promising you guys full episodes. We are ready to go. This is episode number one. We're going to call it season two because this is where we're starting fresh. The episode number one, the first full episode of the Spirits Guide Podcast. And we are starting out I'm on my own because I feel like as much as I wanted to do a co-host and I wanted to do some other things, I feel like this is my podcast, it's my baby, it's my dream, and I had to start out by doing this kind of on my own to to share my voice with you guys, to start the journey with you guys by myself, and then over time, we're going to add guests. I promise Uh, There's some great stuff coming up in the future that we're already working on, but this one here, I'm on my own, and we are talking about Anthony Bourdain, who is a personal hero of mine, the inspiration for everything that I want this podcast to be, everything for what I want the journey of the next phase of my life to be, uh, for so many reasons, Oh, and by the way, we are the Spirits Guide, so there's a lot of spirits involved. I handpicked four great spirits to drink, uh, rate, review, talk about with you guys as I talk about the book. So we're talking about Mileti Amaro, we're talking about uh, a great Armagnac, some great Milagro tequila, and then I cap it off with a little bit of E.H. Taylor Small Batch. Allocated whiskey. So yeah, I I I'm I'm speechless. I'm stuttering because I, I can't believe that we're finally here. And I can't thank you guys enough for being here. Uh if you've liked what we've done so far leading up to this, you know, obviously go to Spotify, follow the podcast, give us a five star rating, follow me on Instagram, follow me on Facebook. You can email me or message me on either of those platforms. If you've got anything you want to email me directly on, talk about, show ideas, if you you think like, hey, I'd like to come on and talk to you about it, thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. You can email me directly. I'm going to get right back to you on any of those platforms. (sighs) I, I don't know that I have anything else to say. Sit back, relax, enjoy. I, I hope you guys dig this as much as I did doing it for you guys. And I hope that this is just the first step in really what I want to be a long, long journey uh, for, for all of us. Let's bring more people into this. If you like what we're doing, share it on your, your social media as well. Let your friends know about it. Let's grow this podcast Let's grow this community and this family together. Um, Again, thank you guys so, so much. Enjoy the episode. Cheers. All right, so here we are for what will, I guess, hopefully be the last time. You guys have no idea how many times I've recorded this episode in an attempt to find some sort of perfection Uh, that is not there, which is perfectly fine because I'm not perfect. The inspiration behind this is not perfect. And the only thing that's really going to be perfect here are the spirits that I'm going to taste. So we are here, episode one, the Spirits Guide podcast. And what I want to talk about on this first episode that will hopefully set the tone for everything we're going to do is Anthony Bourdain. Sorry. And I'm going to do this in two parts, so this is going to be episode one, and in this episode I'm going to focus on Kitchen Confidential, which really was my introduction to Anthony Bourdain, and then in the next episode, next week, we'll be talking about Roadrunner, which is a documentary film that came out in 2021, and it basically documents Bourdain's life from what happened to kind of get the book contract that got K- Kitchen Confidential made and then what happened to his life from there all the way up to the you know very sad and very tragic ending now before you get all worried and think like oh we're not going to talk about spirits this is the spirits guide so we will be talking about spirits here and I am surrounded by a ton of great spirits but I've selected four in particular to kind of drink talk about while I talk about Anthony Bourdain. So I'm going to start off kind of touring the world here with a little bit of Amaro from Meletti. Now Amaro in Italian means bitter. Uh, and this is something that Italians culturally would drink before dinner uh, as a way to kind of prep, you know, like an aperitif. Uh, but it's also something you might sip on after dinner as a way to settle your stomach. Bitter liqueurs are made, you know, with with bitter roots and herbs and barks. And the one that I'm drinking is the Mileti Amaro. And the Miletis have been making uh, liqueurs, Amaros, cordials for over 150 years. They started out as a coffee business. So the way that they they make their spirits is they basically put a basket in the still Uh, with all the ingredients, and they pump alcohol over it and through it uh, while adding some other ingredients that kind of percolate um, the the whole spirit. So what you get is a richer, more intense flavor. Now, as far as Amaro's go, um, and again, it means bitter, uh, this is a very approachable one. So if you're curious about the category, you're not sure really where to start, This is a great one because it's got a nice little bit of sweetness. It's really, really accessible, but it also has a great little hint of bitterness on the back end. And right on the nose, you know, you're getting, you know, really sort of bitter roots, but you're also getting clove, nutmeg, hints of anise, uh, and big, big aromas of burnt orange. So I'm going to take a sip. If you've never had anything like this before the best way I can describe the flavor is if you took some, you know, flat sarsaparilla and some flat root beer and some flat moxie and some flat birch beer and then maybe did a little bit of burnt orange peel in there That's kind of what it tastes like. It's absolutely delicious. Uh, Really quickly on that three-tiered rating scale, is it good? It's absolutely fantastic. I feel like every spirits enthusiast should have a bottle of Amaro on their bar. I have that sickness, so I probably have six or ten different Amaros on my bar. Uh, This is a, a passion you know, and we'll talk about this throughout the course of the episode and we'll talk about it next week on the, the Roadrunner 2 of Spirits Guide and how I view spirits as something that connects me and all of us together, you know, to other humans. It's what I love about Bourdain, like his whole mission in life was to really connect with other people. and And he did. And we'll talk about that as we go on. And kind of my human connection with this is my friend, the BSO, who is going to be joining me next week for the Roadrunner episode. He's really the one who got me into Amaro's and much like anything that I try and then like, I ended up in the rabbit hole, which is why I have so many of them. So, yeah, back to that three tier rating system. Is it good? Absolutely. Is it worth the price? Without a doubt, this is in the low 20s on the shelf. Very affordable. And again, very, very approachable. Does it start a conversation on your bar? Without a doubt. All the Maletti cordials, liqueurs, their labels look like they haven't been updated in 150 years. Um, I have a, a Maletti book in my collection that shows all the old advertising posters going back 150 years, and they really haven't been. And they're in that classic style um, that I absolutely love. In fact, I have a poster of one of their labels hanging here in the studio because they're just that cool kind of Renaissance period posters. Uh, You see a lot of that with old sort of French liqueurs and old absinthe posters and some of those old cordials. They're just very, very cool. <clears throat> so does it start a conversation? Absolutely. Mileti Amaro, three out of three. Um, on that rating system. So here we are, and if you're wondering why Bourdain, why Kitchen Confidential, there's so much to it. Um and, and I really want to show, kind of going forward on this podcast that we don't just drink. Um there are so many things that connect us as humans, and spirits, yes, are one of them. Uh, but the books we we read, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, uh, the TV shows that we watch, the things that we kind of experience, I, I guess culturally, are are not only the things that kind of enhance us and enrich us, but they're the things that we talk about when we're with you know other human beings. So they're they're great connecting points in our humanity, and in stories, just. They kind of make the world kind of go. Um, you know, this is how our history has been passed down over the years through stories, uh, some of which are even true. So what is Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential and why this particular book? First off, is it a great book? I, I'm going to dare to say no. But it is the Bible of the restaurant industry. It documents somebody who was An awkward kid who found a home in a kitchen found a a joy in doing something that not everybody can do. You can teach anybody to cook. You can teach anybody to make hollandaise sauce. As a bartender, I can teach anybody to make a Negroni or a White Russian or a mudslide. But to do it professionally, to get behind the line of a kitchen, to get behind the bar, to do it day in and day out without losing your mind, without murdering a customer or a coworker, takes a special kind of person. Um, and that's really what this, this book documents. It really is sort of the Bible of the industry. And much like the Bible, it's a collection of stories that tell a larger story. But unlike the Bible, these stories are all true. And they actually form a more linear and cohesive storyline through this collection of stories, pretty much all the way up until he gets published. Starting out from his time in P Town as a young kid, uh, much like a lot of us who got into the business, we're young, we're cocky, you know, we think we know what we're doing, and then, you know, the adults and, and the big boys kinda knock us down and and haze us out. And so many people just kind of find it in them and they quit. And he didn't do that. He learned how to get better. He realized like, oh, you know, there's an important life lesson there that, you know, I always talk about, like, don't trust anybody who's never been punched in the mouth. Like these were different times back then of you, you weren't tough on your computer behind your screen. Like, You had to actually go out and be around other human beings and try to be tough. And if you were tough and couldn't back it up, there was somebody bigger who was going to punch you in the mouth. What you did with it from there was kind of up to you. What he did with it was realize like, you know what? I've got to get better so I can compete on their level. So here's a guy who thinks he's great, gets knocked down, puts the effort in, becomes really good, ends up going to CIA, Culinary Institute of America. Gets even better. In his early 20s, he's a chef in New York. You don't get much higher on the hog than that. While he's doing that, he's partying like a lot of us did in the restaurant business. Finds himself with a pretty nasty drug habit. Drunk a lot. Smoking a lot of cigarettes. But at the same time, he's writing a lot. He fancies himself a writer. He's got this creative thing. He's really good in the kitchen. uh, But he's writing a lot. And one of the things I liked about how he ran his kitchen and he talks about it in the book, you know, as is being part of a pirate crew. And then eventually he gets to be the head pirate. And there's so much great stuff in there about how people like him and the people who worked for him and the people that he worked with. And I can relate to it entirely of we didn't really have a place in the real world. In fact, we probably shouldn't have been in charge of anything in the real world. We shouldn't even be functioning in the real world. That's why kitchen people are actually in what we call the back of the house. We're, you know, chaotic. We're borderline criminal. We're, you know, depressives. We're people who crave attention, but we're introverts. We're, you know, shy, but want to talk to everybody. We're traveling other places in our minds. And, and you just kind of become this this thing that not everybody can do. And getting to be part of a pirate crew is great. Getting to lead a pirate crew is even better. Um, because in that sort of chaos, you find humanity. And that comes across in this book so much of, you know, yeah, you know, as a cook, you get yelled at. As a bartender, you get yelled at. Uh you know, you get ups and downs, and but there becomes this sort of family atmosphere. And when you're running the pirate crew, you get to look out for these people. Like you, you figure out how to experience different things. You figure out how to experience different people in different ways of, you know, their cultures, their, you know, their orientations, their, you know, different, everything. And in the end, you know, what you realize is that I don't really care who you date, who you love, you know, what you do outside of the, the asylum that we all work in. What I do care about is when you get in, you settle in, we function like a team and we go forward. Learning how to connect with all those people and manage all those people gives you a certain skill set where you want to kind of go out and discover more. At least it leaves you open to discovering more. And, you know, this book, like I said, it really is the Bible of of the industry. And there's a a couple of great passages, and I'll I'll kind of touch upon a few of them. This one I, I love a lot, and I've read this book, Three times now. I've listened to the audiobook, which, you know, after I take a break and come back, I'll share the experience of the audiobook with you. And usually, you know, in the future on on this podcast, we're going to talk about movies and we're going to talk about music and we're going to talk about books or TV shows. But I always want to deal with them in their purest form. So, you know, if we're talking about an album, it's not the deluxe version. It's not the bonus tracks. It's not the super deluxe 40th anniversary edition. It would be the album in its original form with its original track listing. Same thing if we're talking about a movie. We're not talking about the director's cut, the bonus features, you know, the alternate endings. We're going to talk about it in its original form because that's what you know is universally accepted. It's how it was released upon the world same thing with books. When we talk about books, we're going to talk about them the way they were originally you know, were written, not alternate translations, not alternate endings, not bonus features, with the exception of this one particular book. Kitchen Confidential, like I said, I've read it three times. This is actually the third copy of the book that I've owned. Why? Because every time I read it, I just get so kind of into it that I want to share it with other people. And ultimately that's what this whole podcast journey is about. It's about the things that I find in life, um, that I really enjoy and that I really get excited about, whether it's a new spirit or a book that I've read or a movie or a new TV show, you know, and the the first thing you do is like, you think like, ah, my friend Peter would love this. And then you, you shoot him a text or you give him a phone call and you go like, hey, I just bought this bottle of rum. I can't wait for you to try it because I think it's something you would really dig. That's what I want this journey to be about. It's about the, the fun, interesting things that we find that stimulate us, that get us excited, and then how we use those to connect to other people. Certainly there are going to be things, you know, there are going to be spirits that I try that I think like, oh, well, you know, my friend wouldn't like this. You know, I'm not going to share this with them. Or like, I know you don't like this type of music, so I'm not going to call you up and tell you that I just found this great album that you should listen to it. Not there are different things that we're going to connect with different people on. Um, And yeah, apparently I'm going to go on tangents and rambles as well. Kind of coming back around. For this particular episode, for this particular book, Kitchen Confidential, I do have the newest, most updated, bonus features, all the bells and whistles version of this book. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's got a new introduction written by Eric Repair. Eric Repair is somebody we'll definitely talk about on next week's episode. Um, But, you know, I will mention it here in, in this episode as well. It's also got the sort of handwritten thoughts and notes from Anthony Bourdain when he read this book years later. And this was a person who was brash, brazen. Again, he was up. He was down. He was a head chef. Then he was a heroin addict. He went from being a chef at a five-star restaurant you know, to scrambling eggs on a flat top in some crappy diner to then ending up at Le Hall, where he was the head chef and a great one at that. And then the owner of that restaurant was the person who sent him to Tokyo, which is how he ended up getting the book deal for Kitchen Confidential. And again, we'll talk about that on next week's episode. So it's really kind of interesting to see his thoughts looking back on this you know, years later after this book was published, because he did take a lot of shots at people, uh, Emeril Lagasse, Bobby Flay, all the guys on the food network who at that time, he didn't really view as chefs. They were, they were superstars and, you know, people who were out front and his reverence was for all these great French chefs who really were dedicated to the food, the love of the business, you know the organizational skills, the the aspects of running the pirate crew as opposed to being the celebrity pirate. So in his handwriting, and if you have a copy of this book and you're going, that's not in my book. Again, this is sort of the bonus version of the book, but here's his handwritten introduction to the book. I feel sometimes like I've lived three lives. If so, this would be one of them, maybe one and a half. Looking back, rereading this, it seems that no matter what I thought I knew at any given moment in my life, I never knew shit about shit, not about the important things anyways. That, to me, you know, when people read these stories and they think like, oh, it's so crazy, or, you know, they talk about Bourdain and the end of his life and the tragedy of him taking his life they kind of overlook a lot of the really human elements of not only this book, but of him as a a person to come out. And how many of us can really come out years after anything and say, you know what? I was wrong about all that. I didn't really know what I was doing as cocky and as arrogant as I was in my youth. Turns out I didn't know shit about shit. And it's just such a great way if you're rereading the book to kind of take in and put into deeper perspective, you know, what the book really was to him at one point and then who he became later on as he figured it out. Now there's another sort of passage in the very beginning of the book that's actually in the original where he talks about, um, Let me find the exact quote here. You know, he's kind of... My naked contempt for vegetarians, sauce on the ciders, the lactose intolerant in the cooking of the (laughs) Ewok-like Emerald Lagasse is not going to get me my own show on the Food Network, which he actually did have his own show. Uh, I don't think I'll be going on ski weekends with uh, Andre Soltner anytime soon or getting a back rub from that hunky Bobby Flay. Eric Repair won't be calling me for ideas on tomorrow's fish special. The irony there is after this book came out, Eric Repair did call him. Eric Repair did invite him down to his restaurant. And we'll talk about what that interaction was, what it was like on next week's episode. But no spoiler alert here. The the truth of the matter is Eric Repair became one of his best friends. um, And sadly enough, was the man who found Anthony Bourdain after he had killed himself. So to go from, you know, writing this at one point when you didn't know where it was going to go and one of the people you revered the most ends up being your best friend and one of the last people to even see you alive, there's a very sort of human uh, sadness but realness to that of, you know, sometimes we don't know where those connections are going to come from and, and how important they can be. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking with, you know, my friend, the BSO. And it's just somebody I walked behind a bar one day 20 years ago. And 20 years later, we're still, you know, of all the people I ever bartended with, he's still there. A uh, couple weeks after that, we're going to be talking with Peter Thomas, who is somebody that three years ago, I didn't know existed and now he's coming here to the studio to do a podcast with me and, you know, we message each other back and forth and that's because of our love of quirky spirits and and whiskeys and rums and, you know, vermouths and amaros and all that stuff as well as books and music. So, you know, the great thing is if you leave yourself open as a human being to connections, you can connect with some amazing humans that can really kind of fill your life up with, with all this greatness. You know, reading books will enrich you and fill you up and watching movies, uh, tasting spirits. But having other humans that you connect with is is really everything. It's It's the whole world. So if you leave yourself open for that, great things can happen. And... You know, that's something that I got from this book. Again, it's it's the Bible of my industry, you know, in my heart of hearts, no matter what I do from here on out, you know, if this podcast blows up and I become the next Fred Minnick, which I would hate terribly, um, in my heart of hearts, I'm always just going to be a bartender, a restaurant person that's always going to be who and what I am. So, moving on in our spiritual journey, inspired by my my hero, Anthony Bourdain. My next spirit that I'm moving on to, we're moving from Italy, but staying in Europe, and we're going to France. Now, when I was putting together my spirit lineup here, you know, I thought France, I was going to do cognac. And then I thought, cognac is a little too mainstream. what Anthony Bourdain would have liked. Uh, he probably would have drank absinthe, you know, if you ever watch Parts Unknown or No Reservations. Yeah, he definitely would have been drinking absinthe. The problem is, is if I started drinking absinthe now, by the time we get to the end of this episode, I would be totally incoherent. Uh, I definitely wouldn't be sounding professional and the gods would only know what could come out of my mouth. Um, so instead of cognac, I went a little less trendy, but what the locals in France drink, which is Armagnac. Now, Armagnac, much like cognac, um, is a brandy. And brandies are an interesting thing to me. You know, we're going to talk about rum in a couple of weeks. And I feel like every country that has like a, a sugar crop in it um, makes a rum, you know, especially down in the islands, tropical climates. You know Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, uh, Panama—all these these places make rum because they have an abundance of sugar, and you know rum is a byproduct of the sugar refinement process. Well, every culture across the world that grows fruit makes a brandy, uh, which starts out as an eau de vie. So an eau de vie or water of life is a spirit distilled from fruit. When you take that clear spirit and you put it in a barrel, and it gains color, it then becomes a brandy. Now, if you do this by the guidelines and within the geographic region of cognac, that brandy can be called cognac. But there are brandies made all over the world. Um, Famous ones from Greece, uh, Greek brandy Metaxa, uh, Asbach or Ralt from Germany. Uh, There are Albanian brandies, Armenian brandies. In the United States, we have some fantastic brandies uh, from Copper and Kings, which is a place I've been to. They're located right in the heart of Bourbon Country in Louisville. Um, you know, old standbys, things like Christian Brothers, uh, E and J are all made in this country. But in France, you know, there is cognac, there is brandy, and there is something called Armagnac. Armagnac is a geographic region, much like Cognac is. And there are three sort of districts of Armagnac. -Armagnac, Bas-Armagnac, I don't even know how to pronounce that, Tenerizi Armagnac, and Ho-Armagnac. Now, the Armagnac that I'm tasting here is the uh, Labiette Castile Bas-Armagnac. And this is an estate that has been around since 1898. Armagnac is in the southwest corner of France, um, whereas cognac is north of Bordeaux, uh, closer to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, like I said, uh, Armagnacs or brandies or cognacs, these are made from grapes. And pretty much, you know, when you're making whiskey, you need to make beer. And then you distill that beer. So there's basically two types of, of spirits. There's fermented spirits, which are your beer and your wine and your mead. And then there's your distilled spirits, which are basically cooking to kind of boil off and capture the alcohol as a way to increase the alcohol content. So in order to make brandy, in order to make cognac, in order to make Armagnac, you need to make wine. And you make wine from grapes. And the traditional grapes used are Colombard. Barco, Trebbiano, and Pickpool. And I know to most of you out there, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, It's just sort of a fun thing to know. They're not typical grapes found in American wines or wines that most people drink. Ah, It smells so good. A couple of major differences between Armagnac and Cognac. Um, Cognacs are made in pot stills. So they're, you know, done by the batch. And it's a little easier to control. Armagnacs are made in column stills, but not column stills like we're used to seeing. Um, I know when I was at Old Forrester, I that column still was probably four stories high. Uh, Armagnac column stills are pretty small. They have about 15 plates max to them. And they're designed a little bit different than a typical column still. And some of the other differences... Um, Armagnac coming off the still is about 60% uh, alcohol. So like 120 proof coming off the still. By comparison, bourbon can be distilled to 160 proof. um, And then it has to go to barrel aging at 125 proof when it goes into the barrel. Those are the maximums. They don't have to be that, but they can't be any more than that. So Armagnac comes off the still at 60 proof, um, or 60%, so 120 proof, and then it gets proofed down to 47%, typically, on average. So you're going from, you know, 60% to 40%. Now, check this out. Cognac gets comes off the still at about 140 proof, or 70% alcohol, and then gets proofed down to 40 So, To me, there's a lot more watering down going on with cognac. um, But because of that pot still and a little bit more rich flavor, uh, it can take that. Also, um, Armagnacs to me just tend to have a little bit more body and a little bit bigger mouthfeel. Cognacs tend to be produced. There's pretty much four major players. uh, Martel, Hein, uh, Martel? Tennessee, Remy Martin, Cavorcier. um, and then, yeah, there's Hein, uh, and then Pierre Ferrand is probably my favorite, but anything else beyond that is craft niche producer, uh, whereas Armagnac has a lot of producers, but they're all really small niche producers, and this is what they drink in France. All right, enough enough rambling there. Yeah, definitely not as sweet as say a Hennessy or a Remy Martin. I'm not sure the exact age. Um, it's a VS, so it's a you know a younger one. I think that's about two years for Armagnac, or at least two years for the youngest O um, de Vie in the blend. It's pretty fantastic. I think this appeals to a whiskey drinker as well. Uh, Again, because it's not sweet, it's got that little bit of oakiness, that little hint of vanilla. Similar drinking experience. Uh, Proof point on this one. Yeah, so it's 80 proof. It's 40, so it's a little bit lower than a typical Armagnac. But again, nice, easy drinker. And you know, when I'm recording this, it's cold outside. It's winter in New England. And as much as I love, love, love my bourbon, there's something about these really cold nights where I don't want to drink big, heavy bourbon. Um, I like that a little bit lighter, a little bit softer, um, more subtle spice of, you know, a cognac, an armagnac, uh, a copper and king's brandy, uh, even scotch I'll prefer over bourbon in the dead of winter. So three-tiered rating system, is it good? Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, You know, the label to me is very classic, rustic French, you know, and I can see, I could see Bourdain sitting down at a, you know, a picnic table out in the middle of the vineyards, having a big lunch and then just knocking back a bunch of Armagnac. So yeah, is it good? Absolutely. And does the bottle start a conversation? Yeah. It's a very cool, very sort of French. And it's going to cause people to ask questions because, you know, again, Cognac has a very sexy cachet to it. Everybody knows what Cognac is. Um, but a lot of people don't know what Armagnac is. By the way, as a side note, if you ever watched The Sopranos um, or if you're doing a rewatch or you're about to watch it, check out the Armagnac episode. It's really, really cool. It's really, really funny. Um, and I just watched The Sopranos back probably a year ago. I did it during COVID. And when that episode started, you know, they're, they they go to the head of the, the, the mob. They go to Tony Soprano and they want to borrow some money. And, you know, Armagnac's going to be the next big thing. It's going to be the next vodka. And I'm watching this going like, this is bullshit. Armagnac, how are they going to pull out of this one? And in the very end of the episode, you know, it comes, it turns out that, yeah, no, it turns out Armagnac is not going to be the next vodka in America. And that's where it ends. Sad, but true. Um, Armagnac is just, it's an undiscovered treasure. Uh, I don't know why we in America don't embrace it more and drink it more. But for those reasons, I feel like that's why Bourdain would be sipping this, uh, if he was doing a show in France. All right, so I'm going to take a break here. I'm going to be back in a second. Like I mentioned, I've read this book three times, and then in preparation for this, I listened to it in audiobook form, and there was a section in there that was kind of jarring to me um, for fun reasons, and when I come back from break, we'll talk about it. They were assembling machine guns for sale in the employee bathroom when I arrived. All the line cooks were hunched over Amalites and M16s, while outside in the nearly unmanned kitchen, orders spew out of the chattering printer and were ignored. Yeah, when I listened to that on the audiobook version, I literally had to stop on my walk and look down at my phone to see if I was still listening to Kitchen Confidential. Um, Yeah, it was that jarring, you know, I had forgotten about that chapter in the book, but then it made perfect sense. Um, And, you know, as we go along with this podcast, it will come out that, you know, at one point in my, I don't know, illustrious, dubious, however my restaurant career is and nightclub and bar career is viewed when it's all over. I, you know, I worked in a strip club for three years. I was actually the general manager. I was the, the person in charge of that kind of madness. So I have seen some stuff that may be similar to that uh, <laughs> for sure. All right. So moving on in our spiritual journey, and by the way, uh, Jason Gelb, if you're out there listening, I'm about to drink out of my... Horseshoe Barrel Society, uh, Glen Cairn Glass. And what I'm pouring myself is Milagro Select Barrel Reserve. Now, Milagro has always been a favorite brand of mine for tequila. We're journeying from, you know, we started out in Italy, we moved over to France, and now we're back on this continent down south in Mexico. Uh, where I know Bourdain loved to travel and eat. Milagro has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, I was out shopping one day and came across this bottle, which looks a lot more stylish and elegant than that regular straight up and down Milagro bottle. I love, love, love Milagro tequila. It has always been a great value for me. Uh, They've been around, I want to say, since the 90s. And they wanted to start a tequila brand that, you know, when I started bartending in, in, in the restaurant business, like your tequila options were basically Jose Cuervo. Maybe you found some Herodura. And then later on you had Patron, which was actually really good tequila when it came out. And it was pretty cool. And I remember all the bottles were hand-blown individual. There was no two bottles at Uh, Patron that were exactly alike but those were kind of your options and the flavor palette of tequila at least for what I was getting up here in the northeast uh, was was pretty limited you didn't get a lot of variety and then I remember when Milagro launched uh, thinking that the bottle was cool trying it and realizing like whoa tequila does taste good so this is kind of their higher level, a little bit, um, just a little bit better version of the standard uh, Milagro. Typically, Milagro silver isn't aged at all. It's just distilled and bottled, which is the guidelines of silver tequila. doesn't really have to be aged. Um, Reposados, three to six months. Uh, and tequilas, and kind of means aged. So You're looking at a year, and then extra Añejo, even longer than that. What they do with this particular tequila, uh, it's a combination of pot still and column still distillation. Uh, The, you know, the, the agaves, the piñas, as they're called, are... Roasted for 36 hours in brick ovens, which is a traditional way of doing it. Um, And then, you know, once they're roasted, they're then crushed. All the juice is extracted from them. And then they ferment for 72 hours in stainless steel uh, before getting distilled into tequila. They take these uh, this tequila for this particular bottling. And they're aging it for 45 days in a combination of American and French oak. So long enough to pick up some wood flavor, uh, but not long enough to pick up some wood color. And again, like I could just picture Bourdain in a roadside taqueria chatting with the locals, which is really what you loved about those shows of him going to these... You know what were to him maybe exotic places, but when you watched him, you there you know, a lot of times it was you know the ghetto of some little Mexican town or you know some abandoned town in Peru or when he went to the Congo and it was a once vibrant industrial power that was just kind of a, a bombed out ghetto by the time he got there. And as was the case, so, you know, again, sort of a testament to the kind of person that he was where, you know, he would go to these countries and we'll kind of touch upon it in the the Roadrunner episode next week of like things that we would normally see on TV where we think like this place is awful, you know, they're, you know, they're going to Vietnam. And when most people, especially from my generation, think Vietnam, you think war, uh, you know, Korea and you think war. Or Afghanistan, and you think unrest, or Libya, and you think all these terrible things. And it taught me that wars are fought between governments, but humans in every country are human. Um, and those were the people he connected with; those were the the stories that he, you know, shared with them. And if you watch that, you know. I talk a lot about how, you know, in the end he was just a a chef and, and what a burden, you know, it must've been to like, you're a chef, you're organizing this pirate crew, you dream of these faraway places. And then one day you actually get to go there and then somehow unwillingly, you know, you think you want to connect the whole world, but then the whole world is connected through you and you're kind of the glue that's holding it all together To him, these were exotic places, but, you know, when you watch, they were just real places. They were just real humans, and he would go to these places and, you know, connect with the locals through their food culture or, you know, go out at night and connect with them through whatever, you know, shitty continental lager, as the BSO would put it, you know, whatever beer that they drank there or whatever spirit they drank there or whatever music they were listening to or whatever festival was going on it was through those things you know that he would connect with these human beings and that again is a big part of what i want to do with all this is go on this journey go on it with all of you guys who are out there listening and connect through you know whether we talk about an album that you guys like or or an album you hate you know, like, I want to hear that feedback of like, I don't believe you like that album. It's, you know, it's terrible, you know, and then force me to defend it. Or, you know, at least we're having conversations. and And that's what he did was have these conversations that I think became bigger than he ever thought they could be. Because, you know, in the end, kind of in his mind, he was still just a chef, like getting to lead this crazy life. But back to my tequila. So again, Milagro um, Select Barrel Reserve. I found this for forty bucks in a total wine. The bottle, you know, when we get to the three tier rating system, does you know, does the bottle start a conversation? It definitely drew my attention, you know, when it was on a shelf amidst you know a hundred other tequilas. So, yeah, number three on that rating system is already checked off. Now on the nose, I'm getting, you know, those kind of standard funky vegetal kind of that green succulent nose of, you know, like if you ever smelt like the outside of an aloe plant or if you bought one of those like little succulent flower pots, you know, at uh, Trader Joe's, like it's got that sort of green herbal nose. Almost like the fruitiness or sweetness of like a bell pepper. But then you're also getting the influence of the barrel on the nose. Like a lot of the vanilla notes. And you know. French oak imparts a more subtle oakiness to it. It's almost like a. Like a creamier kind of oak. A lighter, toastier, creamier. Like. I don't know. Like graham crackers with cream cheese frosting on them. Or All right. The proof is in the glass. Mm. It's yeah, it's funky. It's fresh. It's so much like vanilla to it. I'm trying to scan the bottle. Yeah, so it's 80 proof. And again, You know, when we talk about bourbons and, you know, there's a lot of whiskey drinkers out there who are just, you know, chasing proof points. You know, they like these big 95, 100, 110, you know, the hazmats, the 139s, the 140 proof bourbons. Those are all fine and well. But if you're, you know, if you're looking to have a long night hanging out with your friends or, you know, hanging out with people who don't drink and you don't want to become too offensive, Having a nice 80-proof spirit that you can sip on, still get that full-bodied flavor. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic because, it, it, you know, if you can find something with a body like this at 80-proof, it, it's perfect. You know, it, you're, it just shows that you're drinking for flavor and taste and quality and not necessarily just drinking to get a buzz on. Which, I mean, is going to happen, you know, by, by the end of the show, most episodes. Yeah. We're going to probably start to get a little silly around here. And that's a, you know, it's a byproduct of what we do. It's just, why do we want to get there so fast? Sometimes you do. And there's a, you know, I love those high proof bourbons, but every now and then, you know, you want to go a little bit longer distance. And not only that, but this is great with food. Like I would You know, drink this with tacos or burritos or, you know, enchiladas, something a little bit spicier, which I know is not all Mexican cuisine, isn't spicy, Um, but certainly anything I'm making at home is going to be on the spicier side. So this has a great sweetness and viscosity to kind of complement that. So, so good. So where else do we go with Bourdain? Oh yeah, Bourdain was a music nut. You know, he grew up kind of in the punk scene. And when we talk about Roadrunner next week, when that filmmaker started to document Bourdain's life and kind of put things together, he developed a playlist, you know, of all the music that Bourdain would talk about on his shows or in the book or, or in interviews. And that playlist turned out to be... 30 some odd hours long and if you check it out and I'll try to link it up when we actually do the episode next week I'll try to put it in the show notes put a link into that playlist it is everywhere from you know the Ramones and a lot of New York punk and Jim Carroll but then modern stuff you know like Queens of the Stone Age And then you get some weird kind of classical music in there. Then you get like some Van Morrison and some Patti Smith. Again, being open to, you know, every sort of experience leaves you open to all these different types of music. And it's, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, you ask people like, hey, do you like music? Yeah, I like country music. Well, no, you like a segment of music. Music lovers want to hear it all country music lovers want to hear country music and there's nothing wrong with being in your lane and knowing what it is and enjoying it that's great um but for some people you know i see it a lot with whiskey lovers you know i love whiskey what do you like i like bourbon all right well there's scotch and I, no 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 i like bourbon well then you're not really a whiskey lover you're a bourbon lover and that's different than wanting to experience everything you just want to experience and stay in your lane totally fine again um, but for Bourdain, like if you read the book, you watch the shows, you know, he didn't just like one style of food and it was kind of one of the great things about him is this was a five-star chef who, you know, in the book, there were words that I had to look up and go like, what does that mean? You know, cause they're very French, you know, in, in history, in the history of French cooking. And so you could watch him be you know, more than comfortable, like at peace and very, you know, appreciative and love, love, love to death, you know, a uh, five-star 24-course meal by the top chef in the world. And then in the next episode, you know, he's drinking, again, shitty continental lagers, eating some sort of weird fried street food, you know, in some dive side alley in Taiwan. There was an unpretentiousness of, you know, you can appreciate what is, quote-unquote, you know, flashy and ritzy and great. But you can also appreciate, like, what's just good at the base of it. Um, you know, musically, he could appreciate, you know, the Stone Street fighting man. But at the same time, you know, love the Ramones or the New York Dolls uh for that, too. And that's just you know being open and wanting to experience everything you can in life. So he was a, a music lover and a food lover, and a movie lover. Um, you know, in a book lover, his mother loved books. He read a lot of books. And you know, if you watch the the Parts Unknown episode on the Congo, They really kind of dive into the whole Apocalypse Now, which was one of his favorite movies and how he got to kind of in a faux delirium play out that role of Apocalypse Now. So I'm going to kind of skip up in the book here. Again, there's so much in the book and I could talk about it. If you've ever worked in the restaurant business and you haven't read this book, you really need to... um, there there was just so much when I was reading it where I was going like, wow, that's either me or I know that person. You know, like the names, the specific names in the story aren't really important. They're characters, and they're characters that have existed in every kitchen that I've ever worked in. Um, crazy people, crazy people who do bad things, crazy people who do good things. But they're in every kitchen i knew all these players in this story and again it's a far more linear and cohesive story than some other collections of stories which again is just it's sort of a testament to i feel like a lot of people read this book and go like oh my god that's crazy you know that stuff it's not real and it is real because i lived it but what I think made this so great is not that he told the truth about, you know, don't eat fish on Mondays or the truth of what happens to, you know, rolls after, you know, if you get a basket of rolls at your table for dinner and you don't eat all the rolls, what happens to the unused rolls. Yeah, there's there's something to that, but the way it was written, the style it was written in by somebody who wasn't an English major, somebody who, you know, he went to culinary school, but probably, you know, was never going to finish Vassar as an English major, yet had a style of writing. And I, I I think it was basically the stories he told in his head, he literally wrote in that language, in that verbiage. So it's not so much the stories that he told, you still have to tell the stories in an interesting and engaging way. And he did it with a dark sense of humor. He did it with a self-deprecating sense of humor um, and in a very charismatic way. And yet told a story of the darker side of the business while not holding back about himself and the darker sides of who he was. And kind of to that, you know, One of my, my, the last favorite passage that I'll read uh, from Kitchen Confidential. If there was any justice in this world, I would have been a dead man at least two times over. By this, I mean simply that many times in my life, the statistical probabilities of fatal outcome have been overwhelming. Thanks to my sense of excess and poor judgment and my inability to say no to anything that sounded as if it might have been fun. By all rights, I should have been, at various times, shot to death, stabbed to death, imprisoned for a significant period of time, or, at the very least, victimized by a cassava-sized tumor. There's a weird sort of almost prophecy in that, and, you know, when you, if you read this book, if you haven't read this book, I, I can't recommend it enough. Because as much as I say it's about the restaurant business and it's about this guy named Anthony Bourdain who kind of went up, you know, was on top, was on the bottom, was on top, fancied himself a writer. And then one day somebody said, we're going to get you a book deal. And he became famous literally in the blink of an eye. There are so many other stories in this. You know, there's a human redemption story. There's a story of hope of, you know. You know, he tried hard and he stuck around the game long enough and something cool did happen to him and he did get to go see the world. It's also, you know, a cautionary tale of some of the other things that happen. There's a great chapter in there on, you know, people who run restaurants and why they fail. And the more I read it, the more I realized, like, that's not restaurant specific. That's literally why so many other businesses fail. You know, whether it's absentee owners, uh, you got in over your head, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Uh, There's great chapters in there of, you know, these stories of people who open a dive bar in a college town and they're really, really successful. And then something causes them the delusion to think, like, I can open a five-star restaurant in Manhattan. And they didn't stay in their lane, you know. And he talks about there's nothing wrong with being in your lane and being a dive college bar. And making a living doing that why you know why do you get it in that delusion? Sometimes you just know you should know your limits. One of my favorites is the story he tells of how many people uh, throw these great dinner parties, uh, these socialites who throw these great dinner parties and one of their friends convinces them, you know what you should open a restaurant because you throw a good dinner party. And this wraps all the way around to what I was talking about in the beginning of the episode of you can teach anybody to drink. Anybody can make a good meal or a good cocktail, but doing it in the restaurant business, doing it under that pressure day in, day out, um, let alone the expenses of you know running a restaurant, whether it's hood fans, safety inspections, ice machines, uh, washing machines to wash uniforms. Refrigeration units, you know, guests, all these other expenses, let alone the kind of people you have to grease the palms of and all these extra things. Just because you can make a good meal and throw a good dinner party does not mean you can run a good business. Um, And it kind of shows that anybody who does have a successful restaurant or is a great cook or a great bartender really does deserve a higher level of respect from quote-unquote normal people, you know, who have the quote-unquote real job, which I spent my whole life hearing of, ah, when are you going to get a real job? It is a real job. It is a real career. And unfortunately, not everybody in the restaurant business takes it seriously as a career or a real job. But for people like Anthony Bourdain, for people like myself, for people like the BSO, we took it seriously. It became your heart, your lifeblood. Um, you know, some people just kind of show up and do it. But Bourdain was mining for old French cookbooks. You know, I'm always looking for old spirit books. Uh, you know, BSO is always looking for old cocktail history books because we wanted to get better. Because um, we found that there was something we could do that nobody else could do And yet we wanted to be great at it because there aren't a lot of people who can be great at it. So, yeah, this book is so much more than just, you know, a guy who tells some terrible tales about the New York restaurant scene. There's a lot of humanity in here. Um, You know, and there's some cool stuff. If you're from my area, there's a, a mention of Worcester in there when he talks about a chef who kind of came up and worked in like the Worcester Framingham area. That was pretty cool. Lots of lots of fun stuff um across the board. All right. We're moving from Mexico and we're coming back home to the heart of Bourbon Country. And the last spirit we're going to taste this is a special one. It's what we call an allocated whiskey. Uh, As we go on week to week, you'll learn how much I love sarcastically that term of allocated whiskey. And yes, this is a Buffalo Trace product, which usually is something I speak highly against, but it is. And it's one of the few that if you can find it at the right price. um, By the way, Uh, The Milagro, to go back to that three-tier rating system. Is it good? It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, If you think that tequila is not for you, try some good tequila. Uh, Is it worth the money? For 40 bucks? yeah, it's worth every penny. And does the bottle start a conversation? Like I said, I was walking through uh, Total Wine, and amongst the wall of tequilas, that bottle grabbed my attention. And for the price, it was just unbeatable. So, yeah gets all four marks. And like I said at the beginning, I may not be flawless. The sound of this podcast for episode one may not be flawless, but all the spirits that I'm tasting here are absolutely positively flawless. And that leads us to the fourth and final spirit that I will close out with. This is the Colonel E.H. Taylor Small Batch. Now, to me, there are three core E.H. Taylor bottlings. There's the Small Batch the straight rye in the single barrel. There's been a lot of one-offs and I don't particularly like that Buffalo Trace does that. And for this reason, Colonel E.H. Taylor uh was a distiller. He had the distillery where Buffalo Trace is now. Is at one point it was called OFC, Old Fashioned Copper Distillery. And at, there was a point in whiskey history in this country, and everybody talks about bourbon as Native American spirit. That's kind of semantics, it's kind of not true, and it has more to do with taxation and money. Uh And one gentleman who had more stock than he thought he could get rid of, and he got the federal government to declare bourbon as a unique American product. That, by the way, happened in 1964, not that long ago. Um There are some of you out there who were maybe even born before bourbon was officially bourbon. Prior to 1964, you could make bourbon in Mexico, in Canada, in Germany, in France, and they did. Um, By the way, until the first couple weeks of January of 2022, Japan did not recognize bourbon as a uniquely American spirit. And I believe you were technically still allowed to produce bourbon there. So here's why I don't like why Buffalo Trace kind of uses the EH Taylor on other products. EH Taylor at the time in, you know, the late 1800s, distilleries would make bourbon and then they would barrel it. They didn't bottle it themselves. They just put it in barrels and they would sell it to a general store or what was known as a rectifier who might blend it with a barrel of whiskey from another distillery. And there were brands that were created at that time, and they would buy whiskey from multiple sources, blend them together to create their own signature blend and brand. This is pretty much what happened with Scotch and Johnny Walker as well. The problem with that was, is if you put your whiskey in a barrel and you branded your name on it, people came to know your name. you know, And much like it should still be today... Your name is your your word, it's your credibility, it's your integrity. So if there's anything wrong with that whiskey, then there's something wrong with your name. And what Edmund Hayes Taylor, E.H. Taylor, realized was that they were making barrels of whiskey, but then these rectifiers were blending other stuff into it so you could turn one barrel into two barrels, double your money by selling an inferior product. So him... And Secretary of Treasury John Carlisle came up with what was known as the Bottled and Bond Act. And the Bottled and Bond Act pretty much ensured that the bottle of whiskey you were buying was as pure and as authentic as it could possibly be. This act was the first Consumer Protection Act enacted by our government in this country years before the Pure Food and Drug Act. And I always forget whether it was 1904 or 1906. I'm sure somebody out there will correct me. But the first law that we enacted in this country to protect consumers uh, via the integrity of the package was the Bottled and Bond Act. And what the Bottled and Bond Act stated was all the whiskey in that bottle had to be made in one distilling season between January and June or June and December. It had to be aged in a government supervised warehouse. For a minimum of four years and bottled at exactly 100 proof in glass that's actually part of the rules. Now there were some other tax related rules that went into it as well but those were kind of the mainstays. That being said why do I not like when they put each tailor on amaranth grain or barrel proof or some of these other bottlings? It's because they're not necessarily bottled in bond products. When I first discovered E.H. Taylor as a brand, it was bottled in bond straight rye, it was bottled in bond single barrel, and it was bottled in bond small batch. So when you have a barrel proof, that's obviously not a hundred proof, it's higher than that. It's not a bottled in bond product. They're just trying to sell whiskey based on you know the hype that they built from these quality core products. That being said, if you can still find E.H. Taylor for a fair price, uh, when I first fell in love with it, it was $45 a couple years ago. You can still pick it up in some places, maybe for $65. I get it with inflation, supply, demand. It's going to go up, but I've seen it $100, $125, $150. That's just insane. Um, It's good. It's great. But it's not worth getting roped into the Buffalo Trace hype machine as well. So, I mean, it's got everything on the nose that you want from a great bourbon. And Buffalo Trace is pretty, pretty secretive about their mash bill. Um, but here's kind of the internet conspiracy theory on it, uh, that the mash bill for this is 82% corn, 8% rye, 10% malted barley with a number four char, which is a heavier char. Um, It goes on a a scale of one to five. So level four is a pretty heavily charred. And it kind of shows because you're getting a nice, rich kind of amber, copper color. On the nose, you're getting some great wood notes. <sighs> mm. Sweet like leather, sandalwood, vanilla, toasted coconut. Caramel, butterscotch, all dark, rich, you know, heavy flavors. It's absolutely fan fantastic. And for the last time on this episode, I can't believe I got through this and this is going to be it. This is the episode you guys are going to get, come hook or come crook. There's almost a tear in my eye because I know, know that we've done it. Three tier rating system for the last time on episode one. Is it good? Yes, it absolutely is. It's it's fantastic. Is it worth the money? It is if you can find it at the right price. The problem is, and it's sort of the, the key element of that sentence is if you can find it. It you know, at one point nobody wanted this stuff, you know, at the store I manage back in 2017, we bought 15 cases of it. It took me a year to get rid of. Now, if I had 25 cases, it would take me a week to get rid of. So if you can find it, and if you can find it, I would say for $70 and under. That's about as high as I would go. I'd go 70 on it. Um, Because of I mean, I'd go 45 for the quality, but then, you know, you gain some some price points because of rarity, exclusivity, you know, all the the games and the hoops that everybody's got to kind of jump through. And I'm on both sides of it because I'm a customer and, you know, I love to find things like this, but I'm also a retailer and... The most recent math I came up with, you know, this year for Christmas, our allocated whiskey haul was about nine bottles combined of Pappy 10, Pappy 12, a bottle of E.H. Taylor, some Stag Junior, and a couple other bottles, but it totaled about nine bottles. My store had to do $240,000 in sales with our particular distributor. Like we had to buy $240,000 worth of product from them. To even get on the list to sniff those nine bottles. And yes, I get that I bought $240,000 worth of product, you know, and I got to sell it, but there's no guarantee you're going to sell it, but you still have to buy all that product just to get your hands on a bottle like this. So from that perspective, I get why retailers kind of jack things up a little bit because you're going to recoup some of that. That being said, you don't want to be too greedy with it. Um, And I try not to be because I want to put these bottles in the hands of good people. So yeah, if you can find this for under 70 bucks, grab it. Uh, because you never know when you're going to see it again. And does the bottle start conversation? It does for so many reasons. One, so many people never even see the bottle anymore. They don't even know what it looks like. Uh, but if you do, it's such a great presentation. It comes in this great kind of, I don't know, egg color, like, uh, khaki-colored kind of cardboard tube, but then when you look at the bottle itself, you know, it looks like an old-school bottle that kind of has, you know, it's got old-school pictures on it. It's a tall, skinny bottle, bright yellow label. Uh You know, it's got his signature on there, his picture on there, the story of it on the back. It looks like, you know, It looks like it's been around since the the 50s or 60s, so it's got a vintage look to it. Like I said, the bottle itself is attractive. The fact that most people have never seen it, and then when they see it, they're going to want to try it. Absolutely, the bottle is worth it. So, I want to wrap it up by thanking you guys for sitting through this first episode. Um, It has truly been a labor of love. Uh, and I can't thank you guys enough for starting this journey with me. And in closing, I want to share this with you guys. Um, one of my absolute favorite Anthony Bourdain quotes, and I post this every year on social media on the anniversary of his death. And it it really, yeah. It's it's basically from an interview he was doing. This is the closing words of Medium Raw, which was the follow-up book to Kitchen Confidential. And to really get a sense, you know, I'm looking at Kitchen Confidential right in front of me. I'm looking at Medium Raw in front of me. And I don't know how much age and time had passed between, but the cover photos, I mean, you can just see the way he aged just from from doing the show. Um, and we'll talk about that more next week. You know. How he looked in the end. He kind of looked like. Like when Barack Obama went into the White House. He looked like he was 28. And it flipped. And by the time he got out of the White House. He looked like he was 82. Like. <laughs> you know. Sometimes life just. Really takes its toll. Um, but this is from an interview. That he did, and in the interviewer was asking him, you know, do you miss being in the kitchen? And there's some great paragraphs before it, but kind of the, the closing of, of his response is, What do I miss? I tell him, and will always miss is that first pull on a cold beer after work. That is irreplaceable. Nothing approaches that. That's the kind of satisfaction no bestseller can ever beat, no television show, no crowd, no nothing. That single moment after a long and very busy night, sitting down at the bar with your colleagues, wiping the sweat off your neck, taking a deep breath, with unspoken congratulations all around, and then that first sip of cold, cold beer. It tastes like victory. Happy waiters flush with tips are ringing out. The cooks look pleased with you and with each other and you remind yourself that nothing came back to the whole night. Maybe it's Curtis Mayfield, Superfly, that comes on the sound system, then put on by a sympathetic bartender, or Gin and Juice, also for the old folks, or something the moment somehow by collective will requires. Gimme Shelter, or The Stooges' Dirt, songs from some other time, not this one, but songs that will always mean something to somebody present, but maybe you had to be there. You look at each other with the intense camaraderie of people who have suffered together and think, we did well tonight. We will go home proud. There are nods and half smiles, a sigh, maybe even a groan of relief. Once again, we survived. We did well. We're still here. Yay! Hey still there? I got one more thing I want you guys to do. Thank you for sticking around till the end of the episode, listening all the way through. I greatly, greatly appreciate that. So what I want to do is grow this podcast. I want to take more people on this journey with us, build this community. And one of the ways that we do that is by making this podcast kind of pop up where people who are looking for it. So what I want you to do is go to the podcast page if you're listening on Spotify, because they don't make this easy. If you scroll to the top of the episodes list, and then there's that little thing that says trailer, and then there's a description of the show above that. In between that, there's a little box for rating. If you tap on that, give us a five-star rating, it will help us to reach more people who are interested in the same stuff that we're all interested in and we can grow this podcast and, and grow the amount of people that are on this journey with us. Also, if you go to the episode description, there's a question at the end of that. And if you guys would just answer that question, it will let me know that somebody's out there listening, cares, and we can make this more interactive. So that's it give us a rating. Um, you can go to the the Facebook page and write a little review. Let us know what you think uh, and answer that question in the future. We're going to use it to do giveaways as well. So thank you guys so much for doing that. And uh, we'll check back with you soon. Cheers.